Greetings, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG Macquarie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. Are you ready to dive into the axis of insanity this week? I don't know if my sanity can hold it, but sure, we'll give it a go. Cool. Well, this week we are going to be covering, of course, the axis of insanity. So we have the Fifth Doctor, we have Perry, and we have Aramem. Kev, do you want to give us a quick summary? So Axis of Insanity has the Doctor, Perry, and Aramem trapped in this sort of pocket dimension of dead-end timelines and worlds that the Time Lords have basically screwed up too much that they can't really function inside the normal timeline. That doesn't make much sense. It's more just a place where anything can happen and rules are very loose, which allows for, you know, some fun. Uh, it's been taken over by a malevolent entity and the doctors, two companions are all scattered to the wind and just sort of have to go through a bunch of weird stuff to try to reunite with each other and fight uh, Jarato, who is this scientist who has taken the Time Lord's knowledge and is trying to use it to destroy the Axis and set herself free. And, the story, when I describe it, and then I think, oh, that's not such a great story. But it does have, it's a very, for lack of a better word, like visual story. It conjures up a lot of like interesting ideas and sort of locations for the characters to go through. And it, I don't know, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of sense of playfulness to be had in the story, I feel. I think this is one of those stories that I greatly admire what it's trying to do even although I'm not quite convinced that it's successful in what it's trying to do. I, I normally really love it when Doctor Who goes for kind of weird and surreal and sort of strange. And I think I've mentioned in the podcast before that my favorite classic series uh, episode is uh, Warrior's Gate. So I'm, I'm sort of fully on board with this kind of more experimental approach. And I, I, I admire a lot of what uh, Simon Foreman is trying to do with the script here. I'm not sure that a lot of it lands some of it does some of it doesn't but i i greatly admire the attempt what's 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 being tried here and i think the idea of the axis itself is 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 really quite compelling that's an interesting kind of central concept i think that the idea that the yeah these dead end time lords and i like the fact also the doctor says it's not just time lords at one point you know so it's not just uh you know some kind of typical Time Lord stuff, but they're obviously intimately involved with what goes on here as well. But like the fact that the uh, the Overseer isn't a Time Lord and, and that there are other kind of species who are involved, that's quite nice as well. I like that. So I think I think there is definitely a lot to be admired here, but I don't... I'm Yeah, there's, there are certain parts of it that I think are quite rote as well. Yeah, I think it's the story that's rote, but it's really buoyed by some great ideas and performances too, which we'll get into. But I just first want to sort of throw out how I think just the idea of the axis itself is very fascinating. These sort of timelines that sort of are doomed and repeat themselves because it can't really infect the main timeline. And it's very esoteric and sort of hard to depict, which is a little hard to wrap your brain around. But even then, I still think it's almost a better version of the Divergent Universe than we got. <laughs> Yeah, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not a high bar yeah, to clear, but, but yeah, you're not, you're not wrong there. Um, no, I agree with that. I, I kind of wish that more was sort of done with that because I, I like the idea of all these sort of dead ends and, and the what could have beens and all that kind of stuff. And um, that's really fascinating. It's a, it's a bit of a shame almost in a way that we've never come back to the Axis again because well, I think there's a lot of, well... Gallifrey, it's not great returns on that. <laughs> 
no, well, you know, I, I mean, within the main yeah. range, let's say it that way. Um, but you know, I think I think you could get some some mileage out of it uh, with with the doctor. But you know, that's fine. It's it's still it's a compelling concept, and and having something sort of interesting like that at the core of your story that's that's really important, and that does give the story a sort of good anchor to build off. Do you build off an anchor? That's not really a very good analogy. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I could follow it still. Um... Yeah, and I think it story is best when it's doing these sort of weird things, like trapping the Doctor in M.C. Escher painting of stairs that he has to sort of navigate through, or like the sort of having Perry shift between this market and this carnival and encountering those like birds that carry the hope of humanity or the despair of humanity, and like this and something shifting like a hall of mirrors, which I guess some of that's a little cliche, but you know it's. The idea that anything can happen is a very tantalizing one, and that's something very audio-specific that I like. Well, I think there's little hints of Douglas Adams there as well, especially when they sort of first emerge from the TARDIS, and you have all this idea of sort of shifting distances and all that kind of stuff. It reminded me about it reminded me a lot of that line in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy about how how uh, the sea stays rock solid and the buildings sort of wash up and down. So there was a little bit of that in there as well. And that feels sort of tonally appropriate. There's a nice sense of fun and, and, and sort of playfulness which is which is being deployed there. So I, I kind of like that aspect of it as well. And it feels like one of those things that I think even with sort of the modern show and sort of very large CGI budgets, that's the kind of thing that the show would still sort of struggle to make look conventional or to be, or at least you know, not terrible, let's say, in, in some kind of way. So I admire the fact that that's, that's using a little bit of audio uh, sort of over video to, to sort of expand the kind of setting that we can have. And it maybe doesn't make a lot of literal sense, but it doesn't need to make literal sense. That's not really what the story's about at all. So I kind of admire those little touches too. If anything, my uh, complaint about the sort of weirdness of the axis, they could have gone farther. Just the idea of what's the weirdest thing to think of uh, dragons and unicorns and a funhouse mirror is, you know, a little limited. And <laughs> I don't know, I feel like they could have pushed themselves into even more sort of genre territory into even like more sort of mind breaking stuff. I mean, we've seen Doctor Who definitely go there before in some of the better stories. So I feel like it's sort of a missed opportunity to just sort of do it's just sort of kitchen sink of cliches rather than something unique. But, you know. I mean, limit of imagination, I guess. It's not too big of a knock. Well, I think this is where the story falls down quite badly because, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think this does feel like kind of a, you know, surrealism 101 checkbox. And yeah, dragons and funhouse mirrors and ooh, a strange market. It's it's that All that stuff feels very uninspired. And, you know, just changing a name slightly or or whatever isn't really convincing. Like like those those birds that you mentioned earlier that carry the hope and the despair of humanity. That's a really nice poetic kind of imagery. That's almost sort of like Renaissance imagery. It's really sweet and smart and clever, and it's a throwaway. So it doesn't it's not lingered on. And those little details are fantastic. But like the the fire breed or whatever, that's just like so lazy uh, you know it's just it, and it's it just doesn't th- those aspects of the story i think is is what drags us way way down because the settings just feel like you said they should be so much more ambitious 
being inside an Escher painting. That's kind of taking an idea from Castrovalva and sort of running with it. But it's not a reference to Castrovalva. It's just doing something in a similar mode. That's fabulous. That's that's great. But unfortunately, you know, yeah, we, we go back to kind of like Hackneyed Market or, yeah, like Funhouse Mirrors and, and like, a, like a Lava Planet. Ooh, very original. And, you know, it's just those those aspects to me really kind of damage what the play is trying to do i can't really argue with any of that for sure so i think instead i want to switch gears and talk about the aspect that really worked the best for me i love the villain of the story jarato i think the character as written isn't super interesting there's a bit of a sort of tragedy to the character where she's stuck in this doomed timeline and just trying to break out and it's a little insane because of that because of the whole mind mill the dead time thing i mentioned earlier but what really boosts it is the sort of mostly dual, but then also like at all performance from uh, primarily Lisa Ross and Garrick Hagan uh, between her and her normal state and her as the jester. But then also you have other characters portraying her, including the regular characters portraying the shapeshifted version of her. It's a character that you can't really, it's a very slippery character because the shapeshifting is used very cleverly, I feel, to sort of, give the character so many aspects but you never really lose the core of her and that's such a really fun idea that there's just so that she could be anything and so every actor could sort of a turn at portraying her and it, it's just very it keeps it very interesting for me oh yeah no i'm i'm, I'm with you there and i think one of the nice things about jared is is that the motivation which is basically just survival is incredibly straightforward in terms of giving her a reason to be doing any of this, but it also allows for enough complexity that these other sort of facets are are able to kind of come through convincingly. I have to say, I find the jester pretty insufferable. Ugh. And I know he's meant to be, I get that. Uh, but even so, I'm still listening to somebody I, I find sort of fairly insufferable. And this, is, this isn't the fault of uh, Axis of Insanity, but it reminds me hugely of a Star Trek Voyager episode called The Thaw, and uh, Michael McKean, who's, of course, a fantastic actor, but he plays a very similar character. But he constantly underplayed it. And by underplaying it, he made it much more effective. But the jester here and Garrick Hagen's performance is so screechingly over the top that it just, it, 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 it sounds like he's doing like a Jack Nicholson Joker or something. And it just, I don't know, it doesn't work. It's, it's another one of those aspects to me that sounds like, you know, they're reaching for something, but it doesn't quite get there it's another one of those kind of cliches because i'm mad i'm mad i am it's like yeah yeah that fits in perfectly with somebody whose imagination hasn't gone beyond funhouse mirrors and spooky marketplaces but that's not good enough for me and yeah i I get he's meant to be annoying and in that it's wholly successful i think i don't know i am always a fan of the sort of big hammy swing for the fences performances and i agree that it's sort of lacking an imagination of, oh, what's a creepy madman guy? A jester. It's, yeah. It, but there are some great turns of phrases the character has in that form. And I wish I wrote any down from the looks of my notes. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I just, there's some great turns of dialogue. And I think Garrett Hagen's performance is on the right side of Hammond's silly for me. That does make it seem, if not free of cliche, then at least more acceptable and comfortable cliche than annoying for me. The thing, and this is, I was just talking earlier today how I pretend Eddie Redmayne's Oscars for Jupiter Ascending, so this is very different <laughs> mileage performances. 
<laughs> I love I love Eddie Redman in Jupiter Ascending. I'm sorry, that's one of my favorite okay. terrible films. Um, but that's not that's not really meant to be a compliment towards his performance. I, I, at least as far as the Jester is concerned, there's no doubt that um, it's definitely a your mileage may vary kind of character, and it's obviously specifically constructed for that. So the fact that it's rubbing me up the wrong way is fine. I think the character is actual actively designed to do that. So I, I don't think it's a failure that it annoys me. But it does still annoy me. But I think also what I think works well is that it doesn't undermine the kind of the, the whole sort of Jaratol story as well. So we can understand that there are aspects here and that we can understand that there are, there are different facets which, which come through. So I, I think it's balanced like that. And I mean, when you draw attention to the fact that everybody in the cast more or less gets to do a bit of a, a turn here, that's absolutely true. And it's great to hear Peter Davison mm. just make this tiny little difference to the way that he performs the Doctor. And like he, he does such a good job of keying into this alternative version and, and you know, sort of being Jared o. And that's really well handled. I think everybody really does a good job with that. So there's, there's, there is definitely something to admire in the concept there. I, I would never want to suggest otherwise. Yeah, I love how Peter Davison is Jared o. It just turns the manic up from like a seven to an eight and it's like a completely different character almost just by being a little bit more frantic and babbly almost like 10 like in how much he's going babbly but because davison it's just altered a little bit more to be unsettling in a very great way but it's not too over the top that you don't think aram's an idiot for not noticing it yeah exactly and i like that aram is given enough sort of agency there that she's able to work out that it's not the doctor it's not it doesn't do her any good but she's still smart enough to be able to sort of come around to the and work it out and given that we have kind of the sort of running thread through the story of you know how smart she is or or you know how literate she is or all these kind of things it's it's nice that she's given a moment where the intelligence of the character is allowed to come through without it just being a kind of big ta-da kind of moment. It's fine. She's presented with the situation. She works out what the problem is and she works out how to get the information she needs so that she can try and do something about it. Yeah, it doesn't work because she's, you know, facing off against this all-powerful entity in its own domain. But still, she has an agency and, and that's, that's some nice writing. It's funny because it, sort of talking about this sort of aspect of it, but it feels like ages since we've done a... A Peter Davison story so I really enjoyed getting back into his doctor I can't even think what the last Peter Davison story we did like it was maybe like the light at the end something if you want like to count that, that yeah been, yeah it's been a long time since we've done a Peter Davison story so I really enjoyed sort of listening to his performance here and I think he's one of the standouts actually in 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 the cast here he gives a really nice performance and when he has to give those sort of speeches about the way that time lords have responsibility and that some of us are prepared to sacrifice ourselves to make sure that time carries on sort of properly, it, it's, it ties in nicely with that era's sort of interest in the way that time lords work. You know, like Tom Baker was always talking about his time lord responsibilities and, you know, Peter Davison's doctor has, has sort of more kind of interaction with the time lords as well. So it's I think he gets some really good material there and we start to kind of understand an aspect of the doctor that that doesn't in any way contradict what we've had on the tv show but it also allows us to expand our understanding of it just a little bit and and there's some nice work done there to to sort of explain why the doctor is prepared to get 
quite so upset and quite so engaged in, in what happens here rather than taking the opportunity to to run when he can. And, and yeah, there's some very nice work there. And it's, it's lovely to hear Peter Davison sort of get to grips with that kind of material. If you want to know when the last time we focused on a Peter Davison solo story, over five months ago with Omega. So it's been a long time wow. coming. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he is fantastic in this story. Uh, I don't want to backpedal a little bit and finish up what we were talking about earlier with Jarrah Toe. Uh, I think Carolyn Morris gets a great turn as her in a couple scenes where she's, especially the scene where Jarrah Toe sort of talks to her herself to reveal her plan, which could be such a cliche and maybe it doesn't work for you, but I sort of, I like the idea that she just has to talk about what her plan is. And then, so she makes Carolyn Morris's Aramem do sort of the <laughs> typical companion role when the actual Aramem is just, like she doesn't even care at that point. She's just too sullen with this person, this crazy person to indulge her. And I think that is a very clever moment. And I think that, you know, it's a little fun term from Morris sort of leaning into cliche companionisms in this sort of fun house way. And that part is fun. It's funny because um, the last time we covered RMM, which I guess is as far back as Church in the Crown, Mm-hmm. I don't think we haven't yeah, done an Aramans for right. since then, I don't think. Yeah, for some reason we choose uh, to skip uh, Necromania. Funny uh-huh. that. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I think um, because we've been away from the character a long time, I was really looking forward to sort of re-engaging with Aramem. And I didn't think that Caroline Morris was very good in this story, I'm sorry to say. I thought for the most part she was actually quite bad and it's kind of weird because i thought she did great in the first couple of stories that we covered with Aramem, but i was not impressed with her performance here at all except when she was doing that kind of talking to herself thing and that's weird because as you said that's the bit that ought to be the cliche that's the bit that ought to be like you know just falling apart and kind of you know where somebody hams it up to try and make that material work but she actually landed that stuff very well but like particularly the sort of early scenes with her and perry and perry's trying to teach her to read uh, alice in wonderland itself another example uh. of really lazy Cliches, you know, I mean, we already had that when we were covering uh, Zagreus and uh, it just, uh, that just, again, that just feels like the laziest kind of uh, sort of way of approaching that surrealism. But anyway, I just, I just, I, I, I find it hard to explain, but I just really didn't feel that she landed any of those scenes and she, she seems to struggle a little bit here she's just she's stuck in kind of box standard so what's this perry what's this doctor kind of mode and it just doesn't it didn't work for me but the, yeah that scene where she gets to do that she's she suddenly comes alive and maybe it's just because that's much more interesting material and it, it sort of challenges her a bit more but uh, yeah in that moment she's great but I, I didn't feel that this was her strongest performance yeah i'm willing to blame the material over morris she is given sort of the weak weaker stuff, even though it's sort of a focus on the character, like, she is mostly sort of sidelined, and she does get these great moments of deduction where she shines, and the sort of bigger moments, like when she starts reciting Alice in Wonderland so Perry doesn't kill her. I think that is a very solid moment of acting from Morris, but it's really only the big moments she nails, and you're right, Rusty is just sort of in the background in a very sort of passive role that doesn't do wonders for any performance, but especially not hers when she's not... I mean, I think it's sort of fair to say, like, Morris isn't as up to snuff as a lot of these other big finished actors have had, 
granted, a lot of them have the advantage of having played the characters for decades before and like seem like just more sort of experienced in that way and more comfortable with the character in that way. And writers more comfortable writing for those characters in that way, where Aram, I think, consistently seems to have stumped people for how to sort of write for her, which never really helps and sort of, I guess, explains why she was sent off after such a little time when other big Finnish companions far outstay their welcome. I think one of the things with Aramem as well is that, I mean, like you're saying, that the writers definitely struggle to get handle on, on her. And I think that's really true here because there's a moment, I think it's an episode, right at the end of episode three, where she discovers the corpse of this Time Lord that um, Jarrato has killed. And, and she sort of reacts in sort of horror and kind of over the top, kind of, oh, you know, it's all that kind of business. But it doesn't really make sense for her character. Like, she's meant to be this Egyptian queen. We know that she's seen dead people in the battlefield before. She must have encountered sort of corpses and death in, in her kind of everyday life. Um, but she has this kind of really weird, over-the-top reaction to finding this body. And it doesn't feel right for her character at all. It feels right for Perry. If Perry had reacted that way and found this sort of dead body, it would make sense. But the way that Aramem is written, that it didn't line up with kind of how the character has been up to this stage. And, you know, Aramem also gets that, you know, I'm stuck in the TARDIS material. And that's so... Nobody could do anything with that. But she gets a Nissa role here. It just gets sort of bundled off to one side for a couple of episodes whilst the main story happens to other people. And, yeah, that's that's not very enlightening either. That also doesn't give her anything to work with. Yeah, it's yeah, it's unfortunate. But I'm just glad we get to cover more Aramem. She does have more interesting stories to come. And so I'm glad we'll oh, yeah. cover those before sending her off but it is it does seem to make sense why she has maybe this is just spitballing but half the stories those evelyn and a third of the stories of like hex because it's just a hard character to get a handle on and and maybe almost shades of like katarina where she was gotten the instant write off just because no one really knows how to deal with this historical character and dealing with them sort of authentically i guess then you have jamie so you know it's not impossible well, or even Victoria, she's a, uh, I mean, she's, she can be an annoying character, but she's sort of written consistently of her time. So, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely something that can be done. But I think, I mean, especially as far as this story is going, I think it's just, I don't think enough thought has been put into, okay, so how would a character from 5,000 years react to this? And like, if you're, I mean, presumably uh, Simon Foreman must be familiar with the character of RMM to write. I mean, there's another couple of plays that he must have presumably listened to to understand the character. And I think the fact that um, Church and the Crown was able to land RMM very successfully, whereas here it doesn't quite land. I think it just, I think it's maybe just, yeah, it's just not been thought through enough. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm being overly critical of Simon Furman here. I, I think he does um, an interesting job with with what we have here. And as far as I can recall, this, this is only big finish play, I want to say, if I'm, if I'm correct. You are correct. Um, and I think that's a shame. I don't think he gets everything right here. And I think, as I said, there are definitely aspects of which I'm quite critical but i think there's more than enough indication of sort of good ideas and good thinking that you could that i think he could become a good doctor who writer i know that he writes for comics and i know he's got a background in in doing that kind of thing he, so it's not like he's uh like a one and done and he's gone on to do something else i know he's a, a proper writer a professional writer 
And it's a shame that he's never come back to do another big finish because I definitely think there's a lot of potential here. Like, yeah, as we said before, like there's a couple of great characters and the axis is interesting and there's there's, there's a lot of stuff. But he needs maybe a, a slightly stronger hand than the tiller when it comes to uh, script editing. And I think just the opportunity to, you know, make like a couple of plays which aren't maybe going to be the best ones, but that's how you learn. And it's so, yeah, I, I really regret the fact that he's, he's not not written any more for Big Finish, even although I'm sort of being sort of fairly critical about some aspects of this one. One thing about the audio play he gets really right is pacing. I think the story is very well paced. I mean, oh, yeah. episode length, we talk about it a lot, but episode length is very, you know, on the money, 20, 25 minutes, and that's all it needs to say. I mean, next week we're going to talk about a story that goes twelve or a half hour, and also I think it's a good length for most of those episodes. But this is, you know, it's a story that knows sort of what it has to say and gets it out in a very sort of concise and well-paced way. Every episode builds on the last and is something sort of different, but also builds the story up and increases the tension. The cliffhangers are none of really standouts. They function as proper cliffhangers. I mean, it's just these basics that We've talked about a lot how when they get overlooked, it's very sort of frustrating. But when you hit it right, it does have a sort of just very sort of pleasant coasting feeling to it. I think that might be just why I'm responding to the story so well is, you know, we've been dealing with some very hard to listen to stories recently. And it's just nice to have one that very gets the fundamentals so right and like just knows how to pace itself as a Doctor Who story very well and just go down and very easy listening. Well, that's exactly what I mean. The fact that he's able to get these elements of the story correct and like you have that kind of foundational level of uh, just getting those bits right, to me just shows why he would be a good writer to sort of come back and try something new because even although there are flaws here, these are flaws which can be easily kind of worked out. Yeah, push yourself a little bit further or, or tweak your characterization a little bit here and there. But when you've got those basics right, yeah, and I completely agree with you about pacing. I think this is a very well-paced uh, four-parter and each part kind of pivots onto a, a new element. So you learn something in the first episode, you learn something in the second episode and so forth. And every time you learn something, every time you approach that cliffhanger, it changes the way that you view the story. So firstly, we find out about the overseer dying or then eventually we get to the volcano planet or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to go through them all. But, you know, every aspect of it sort of moves the plot forward and it doesn't feel like a, a string of you know, episodes that are hang, hung together by exposition. Everything sort of flows from one point to the other. And that, yeah, I mean, it is basic storytelling, but it's done here and it's done well. And so, yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely good stuff to be praised there. So I definitely want to talk about uh, Perry, who I think we talked a lot about the Doctor and Aramem in this story, but I think Perry also is well characterized unlike Aramem. And I do like Bryant performance here a lot. She's taking a very active role in this story that I find very... I mean, it's just nice to see Perry go out and do stuff after getting the short shorts on TV or so long. Every time it happens in Big Finish, it makes me a little happy. And she definitely gets some good work here. I think Nicola Bryant is great here. I absolutely love Perry when she's like this. And, you know, for all that we've talked about companion redemptions here in the past, you know, this story is a good example of how that can work, you know, so well. Because, yeah... Perry is given really great material and Nicola Bryant 
gets to run with it and the results are just incredibly entertaining you know she's a good actor and when she's given that sort of um more engaged material she's really able to sort of deliver on the part she's able to sort of demonstrate why perry was a character that was worth bringing in and indeed why she was you know cast in the role she's got some great rapport with Aramem, for all that I might be critical of that early scene uh, with the Alice in the Wonderland reading, you know, none of the flaws there are down to Nicola Bryant. She's great in that scene in the way that she's kind of cajoling Aramem to, to kind of try a bit harder. That's another little thing. Aramem gets frustrated there because she wants to know where the pictograms are and she thinks English is an inelegant language. <laughs> that's nice. You see, that's, that's how you write that character because that's a fair observation from somebody from that time period. So that, you know, there's, that's why this story frustrates me a bit because there is hints that it can do it but then it, it kind of comes up a bit short but anyway sorry i'm getting off topic nicola bryant is great in that scene and and she just keeps going and she's you know she's still allowed to be afraid and the character is still allowed to be uh you know able to express kind of the dangers that she's in but because it's a much more active character because she's not prepared to just sit in the back foot the character is much more engaged there are certain characters in doctor who 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 function sort of much better when they're sort of pushed onto the back foot and when they're in trouble, including some doctors. Like, I think John Pertwee works best that way. But Perry's the other way around. When she's in the back foot, she's kind of annoying and she could be whiny and, and, and the character doesn't come alive. But when she's given the opportunity to come forward and, and really have something to do and go out and explore, and like, like for all the marketplace is a cliche, but Perry clearly gets her teeth into exploring it and trying to figure out what's happened and, and, and look for the doctor and all the rest of it. And, and Brian is great at doing that. There's a great dynamic between Perry and Aramem. I think this is the first time it's like really come up in something we've covered and probably come up because I mean, last time we covered Church in the Crown, which was Aramem's like first story traveling. And so by now, the dynamic has sort of settled into a great place where Perry is sort of the senior companion and Aramem is sort of the junior companion. And They've got this sort of sibling vibe to them. It's one big finish goes to a lot when it pairs a classic companion with an original companion, but it's one that I think always pays dividends because you don't really see it on TV so much with companion rotations being very sort of, I guess, in blocks, you could say. Like, like the classic series never really paid attention to those dynamics, and the new series never really has a companion stay on long enough to sort of be the senior companion. So it's very fun to get that sort of attention to detail where you do have Perry... Like, Perry teaching Aramem, like you said, it doesn't work because of some lazy choices in that scene, but it's a great idea to have a companion teach another companion from a different time period English. It's a great idea to have Perry sort of educate Aramem on things like there are multiple Time Lords, and this is what, how you should protect the TARDIS and what a TARDIS key is, and it gives Perry status in a way that makes the character more interesting. And it then gives their relationship a little bit of depth to it as well. Oh, yeah, I know. I, I sign off on all of that. I, I agree with every word you said. And I think one of the things that's interesting about the way that Perry and Aramem start their uh, sort of developing sort of friendship here is that it doesn't immediately go to, like, big sister, little sister, even although you can start to see the emergence of that side of it as well. It's just, as you said, it's just that like Perry's the experienced one here. And it's not like she's got a lot of experience, but she's still the most experienced one here. And just by writing the character in that way and giving her that opportunity to have just a little bit more knowledge, 
I think it, it it allows the character to sort of develop out in all sorts of interesting ways. And like just when you were talking there, <clears throat> excuse me, just when you were talking there, uh, I was trying to think of other examples. I can't think of any from the classic series at all. You could maybe make a case for Amy and Rory in the new one, where Amy is kind of like the senior one and Rory comes on board. And I suppose maybe a little bit with, with Rose and Mickey, but it's not really the same at all. And it's definitely something that, that Big Finish do much more, yeah, as you said, than the TV show. But they also, I think they do it better because they have much more space and they have more room and they're not dependent on people uh, in sort of the outside. You know, this is aimed at Doctor Who fans. It's not aimed at people sitting down with their family on a Saturday or Sunday evening, uh, you know, to sit and, and, and watch the TV. And that gives them a scope where they can maybe do these slightly more... Uh, or these different approaches, let's say. And yeah, for these two characters, it works incredibly well. I mean, you think about the only opportunities to have a relationship with that on TV, and you pretty much come up with just uh, Jamie and Victoria and Zoe, or Tegan and Turlo, and yeah, the show just wasn't that interested in sort of creating dynamics at the writing at the time, at least not in this sort of way. It was very... Like, there was different things going on with those companion dynamics than this sort of relationship, so that's, I think, why it's such a fresh and fun thing to have. And... I sort of Aramem sort of sets sunsets away and Hex becomes more prominent. They get to get into that relationship again, which I also, th- I mentioned the companion uh, bonus episode, I really enjoy. But I think that's enough for the companions. There's one more performance I really want to get to, which is Lisa Ross's Jericho. We talked about Jericho a lot in the beginning, but never really got to her, and I think she's really fun. <laughs> like, I think she vamps it as much as she needs to vamp it. And I, I mentioned the moment where she sort of talks to herself to get the exposition out. I think that's what makes the character really work, is that she's dealing with a lot of cliches, but Ross brings an energy to the performance that makes it very engaging. So what could have fallen flat, like parts of the story very clearly do, does get enough kick to really entertain. I think Ross does fantastically well with this role. And yeah, she it's it's this really live wire performance that just walks up to the line of going too far but never actually does. And that's such a that's such a great thing for anybody who acts in Doctor Who to be able to do. Uh, but it's also one of the it's it's a real skill to be able to do that. To just take it far enough uh, that it doesn't sort of all all collapse into shoutiness or whatever. But but she's able to walk right up to that line and balance it right. It would be so easy for that part to to just not work. But yeah, Lisa Ross is great in that role. And you know because Jarrett is is essentially. A sympathetic character as well who just really wants to survive i think that helps her find an edge to the character as well that that, that allows her to not just be this kind of like one-dimensional gloating you know mustache twirler she's she's somebody who has got a little bit more sort of interiority she's got a little bit more depth to her than just you know Wah-ha-ha, now i shall get you and and that makes a big difference as well it's not it's not a big thing but it's enough and 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 i think lisa ross is able to get a handle on that side of the character as well and and sort of make her if not entirely sympathetic then at least somebody who's understandable you can understand why this might be why how she reacts to the situation it's definitely a more complex villain than doctor who like not not the most complex villain but i feel like we've seen so many cliches in the story already it's nice that the villain doesn't just go for a very pat almost master on a lazy day-esque, I'm being bad because I like to be bad. It's very much 
just this uh, character who's lashing out. There's the whole element of she's going a little crazy from the sort of Time Lord stuff that she sort of sucked out of the guy's brain. And it's it does give her like this little extra bit of depth that makes it really click for me. Like I think a lot of the story is very regrettable cliche, but there's parts that just the extra little bit of depth and the extra little bit of extra performance really makes it you know, very enjoyable, which is, it's, I mean, it's just appreciative to have. Well, absolutely. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you about. And I, I don't really know how I feel about this. So that's why I really want to ask your opinion on it is that in episode four, mm-hmm. the whole reason that Jarrett's plan doesn't work or the reason that she can't get away with it is because she can't find the other TARDIS that's there. Does that work for you? I think it worked me up to the point where it was just like a door she didn't check. <laughs> <laughs> like, if there was some other way to justify Aramem finding it and her not, this the extra little bit of work that, I don't know, maybe it's like in the basement somewhere and she and there's just some throw line that she doesn't check the basement for such and such reasons because she doesn't care. But, I don't know, or something of that nature, something that would make it seem... In- conspicuous to her but that airmen would be able to pick up on then that would make it really work well because i think it's a great sort of conflict to have sort of bring the chameleon circuit back in and then like have that be like another sort of piece on the table there's a lot of moving pieces at the end of the story between the shape-shifting and all these like characters the regular Jarto and tog with all different sort of motivations there's and then the whole Axis stuff and the extra TARDIS and the dead time lord, like a lot of different pieces on the table. And I think it does give it a little bit of liveliness that there's this sort of extra TARDIS floating around that's sort of an extra sort of goal to get to and keep in mind. But yeah, the, the story logic-wise, it doesn't make much sense she didn't just check that door right next to her. It really <laughs> stretches disbelief. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a shame in a way that this story was sort of made when it was made because this is uh back in 2004 and just one year later we could have had a line about the perception filter or something you know once once the show returns but we don't have that and whilst i kind of i admire the chutzpah of the of this just being a door she didn't look in but at the same time that's also clearly ridiculous and the idea that like within five minutes Mem has solved this problem that she's been working on for however long it that's 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 i think that's the point where it all kind of doesn't quite come together for me i i i, I admire the effort but i'm not sure the result quite gets there i really like the idea of a story where like everyone, like I said, everyone belittles Aramem for lack of book smarts, but then she wins because she just has to be savvier. Like she is, and this sort of idea of intelligence that should have been, I think, more clearly underlined and better played, where just because she doesn't, you know, know everything instantly doesn't mean she's not, she's a stupid person. It means she has other like skills and her brain works in other ways that are like worth valuing. And that, if, like you said, just a little bit more underlying and a little bit more support from the story could have been a great sort of thesis for it. Instead, though, yeah, she just sort of discovers a door. And then, <laughs> uh, I mean, her outwitting of the villain doesn't really, isn't really sold to me as much. I just love the idea of Aramim outwitting the villain and sort of having the sort of moral victory so much that I kind of want to overlook it, but 
Yeah, it really, it wish it was a little bit more well thought through and clever. Well, that sounds like an absolutely perfect submission of the story. It's just a shame it wasn't ever so slightly more thought through. I think probably for that, for now, we can uh, leave this story there and turn over to our mailbag. Kevin, what do we have this week? This week, we have a letter from Jen from Texas. Thank you again, Jen. Uh, she has first another suggestion of who could play Iris Wildham on TV. Wendy Padbury. She thinks she's a great actress and she's got the right amount of spunk and grit. And with Wendy Padbury, I think you run into the same problem with Katie Manning where she's semi-retired and can do the big finish stuff, but I don't know if she'd be willing to do like a TV schedule. But if she would, yeah, I'd think that'd be fun. Yeah, that's a really interesting choice. Especially because we did um, Davros not that, not that long ago, I guess. And you know, she was great in that, not playing Zoe. So I, I never thought of Wendy Padbury. That's a really interesting idea. I'm sure you're right in practical terms, so sort of sort of semi-retirement or whatever, but uh, it's a really intriguing idea. I'm really interested to hear what Wendy Padbury's Iris Wildtime would sound like now. Yeah, that's very cool. I think what we need now clearly is just a big Iris Wildtime box set where we run through a dozen different Iris uh, incarnations played by different female companions every time. Or male campaigns, sure, why not? I mean, just yeah, open yeah, it to yeah. everyone. <laughs> See yeah, what, like, yeah. uh, Mark Strickson does trying to play a lush. <laughs> That's funny. That was the first name that came to mind as well when, when you said that. Yeah, I was exactly thinking of Mark Strickson. Yeah. Sorry, Mark. No, but, it, I mean, it'd be fun. Like, I think that'd be, like, a very interesting thing to see do. Uh, but, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, she also has a great conversation topic to sort of pad out the rest of this episode. She was really interested in our thoughts on Women Fall to Earth. And her question is, how we think the new series progressing that we're past the first episode, is it living up to its potential? Now, a bit of a warning, we're recording this enough in advance that only five episodes that aired, the Saranga Conundrum, just aired earlier today. So by the time you hear this, I believe two more episodes will have aired. So forgive us for being a little behind, and our opinions might be a little out of date. I hope they are, because my resounding answer to that second question, is it living up to its potential? No, it is not. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a bit weird at the moment, because there, there seems to be a really strong, I, at least I think there's a really strong disjuncture between the quality of the cast and the quality of the material that the cast are being given. I think, I, I mean, it's, my opinion of uh, Jodie Whittaker, since we did the Woman Who Fell to Earth episode, has only got better. I love her as the doctor i think she's such a perfect choice and i have nothing but sort of praise for her performance and the way that she i mean she just is the doctor and it's so fantastic i i absolutely love her but i wish she was being given Mm -hmm. stronger material i think all the companions are great as well i i'm still constantly amazed by how good bradley walsh is and i think everybody else is fine I don't think any of the guest cast have been bad. And occasionally, as in Rosa, they've been outstanding. But there's something about it that it's just, it's very fine. Mm-hmm. But it, we haven't, at the point that we're recording this, we haven't yet had an episode which has been better than fine. Do you think that's fair? That's very fair. Uh, yeah, I think, first I want to second what you said about Jodie Whittaker. She is so fantastic. My only problem with her, and this is not a problem with her, but how her doctor is characterized is Chibnall leans real hard on the name drop jokes to the point where it's getting a little too much. She had a line about seeing Hamilton 900 times, and 
I don't know. Like, it would have been charming if she wasn't also talking about her friend Frank Sinatra two episodes ago, and her, I think it was Amelia Earhart in episode four, or something like that, where she, like, every episode, you get, like, two jokes about some historical figure or some pop culture thing that she's making, oh, I'm from the future, I can time travel, joke about. And it's, it's old now, and I feel bad that that's now her defining character trait. Because it's it's gonna really wear on my nerves if that keeps up for so long. But Whitaker herself is fantastic. She has so much energy. She can bring anger when she wants to very clearly. She can bring happiness and joy even more clearly. Uh, when she called herself a doctor of hope in the most recent episode, that's so good. <laughs> that's such a good bit of characterization, and she sells it so well. So I'm really hoping she gets like her big moment. I think it's really helpful sort of zoom back a bit to think about these first five episodes with the first five episodes of the other four previous new who doctors especially 9 and 11 who are also the first five episodes of a new showrunner and when you take that view it doesn't fall so short i mean davy's first five episode there's only one real standout which is the end of the world in my opinion and uh same with Moffat's first episodes, only 11th Hour really stands out, and then the next four... The Angels one is pretty surface-level entertaining, but yeah, Victory of the Daleks and Beast Below Nolan go for Bat 4. But even then, every Doctor had their big moment by then. Tennant had, in Christmas Invasion, right off the bat, had like a great speech. Matt Smith, in his first moments, has fish fingers and custard, which like, will define his Doctor for better or for worse consistently throughout his run. Uh, Capaldi had Listen this early, which was brilliant. And Eccleston didn't need one big moment because he was just so in the zone with his doctor from the jump that he's so delightful that you just give him like a pass no matter what. Whitaker is also Eccleston in the zone, but not quite there yet because I don't think she's gotten the good enough material. And that's really frustrating because I want to be so on board for her, but she's yet to... She's cap. She's lowercase i impressed me, but she's yet to uppercase i impress me, if that makes sense. And I really want her to. Oh yeah, but I I, I definitely agree. I think the problem is is the material that she's been given. And yeah, I think it is instructive to look back about you know the stories that we've had with other other doctors. And yeah, we've had you know uh, World War Three and Victory of the Daleks and and the Beast Below. And like even the only one who's I think maybe had the strongest first episodes for Capaldi, but even so, you know, yeah. you know, this, this, this I mean, like, yeah. yeah, exactly. And eleventh hour isn't uh, sorry. I'm um, not eleventh hour. Uh, deep breath isn't that much to get excited about either. You know, it's 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 pretty. Eh. And and you know that's that's kind of the problem. And, and you know. Even Tennant had like Tooth and Claw, and I'm sorry, but I think Tooth and Claw is absolutely dreadful. And and like I don't think that um, Whitaker has had a story that's been as bad as as say World War Three or or Victory of the Daleks or or Tooth and Claw. But she's not had it. Yeah, you're right. She's not had anything that comes close to say Listen or or the End of the World or or whatever. And and that's going to be a problem if if the level of uh, material doesn't start to improve then you know we've hit a baseline and nothing's been bad but it's just you know like just well it's okay doesn't really feel like a good enough mission statement for Doctor Who but we haven't really other than Rosa which was uh, co-written we haven't had a story which isn't by Chris Chibnall yet so maybe there's some amazing stuff to come down the line I certainly hope so but it's a bit difficult 
when we've only really had one writer at this stage to to get that impression of of where things might be going. Yeah, I feel like a lot of my fears of Christian are feeling justified, and that's unfortunate because I really you know want him to succeed. But yeah, he's nothing's really impressed me. I do want to push back that nothing's been bad. Ghost Monument I find incredibly boring, and in a way where I would take a camp disaster like Tooth and Claw or World War Three over uh, Ghost Monument. Even though if I would give Ghost Monument a better grade gun to my head, I don't know. I just don't want Doctor Who to be like that all the time. Which is why Raxon's UK and Strong Experiment was a breath of fresh air in a weird way, because at least they were entertainingly sort of bland instead of just bland bland. So, yeah. But then, this is a personal problem, but I also had a big trouble with Rosa, because I don't like, in general... Any fiction, stories set in the past that are all about how awful the past was. And that's just a big bugaboo for me. And if the topic I was dealing with is a very sensitive topic, very important topic to confront. But at the same time, you almost get the sense that hitting you over the head with racism was bad in the 60s. I don't know what that accomplishes since a lot of people can dissociate the 60s from now in a very easy way. I think Mallory Blackman's a great job sort of tying in real-world stuff and having Ryan and Yaz talk about uh, trouble they face in the modern day for a little lip service there. But at the same time, it's just not a story that interests me much, seeing this is how bad the past was and revel in that. It's very difficult stuff for me to get through and just not the kind of fiction I'd really like to go to. And so then that means... The most ambitious story just doesn't work for me. And then we have four very deeply unambitious work from Chibnall, which is very in line with his previous work. And that's what makes the season so hard for me to get a handle on still. I know it's a very sort of minor point, but I, I, I'm sort of at this point, maybe some of the non-Chibnall writers will sort of change my mind about this. I certainly hope so. But my feeling at the moment is that the extra running time that these episodes have being bumped up to 50 minutes is really hurting the pace of these episodes. A lot of them feel very kind of languid. And I know we're used to, especially sort of the last few years, we're used to the kind of like uh, sort of hyper-narrative speed of, of Stephen Moffat where everything is like chop, 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 cut, cut, cut. And, and there's like virtually no exposition. There's virtually none of that kind of sort of those longures that, that Doctor Who always had. And we have those back now, but I'm not sure that that's a particularly good thing. And I think one of the things that the stories we've had so far are, are really struggling with is pacing. Um, these just feel like they're a bit longer than they need to be. And that's because they kind of are a bit longer than they need to be. And I think tightening that pacing up a little bit, or just finding more incident, really, would, would help a lot. Because there's a real... I think a lot of these stories, which... I mean, they can be fine, but there's not a lot of narrative drive behind them. I think um, today's episode... Please don't ask me to pronounce that word. Um, <laughs> it's like I'm only going to make a mess of it. It's uh, made more of an attempt to address that because at least towards the end, you had some sort of tension and like red alert lights flashing and power failing. And there was an attempt at sort of narrative drive there. And I'm, I'm absolutely fine with uh, TV shows and Doctor Who in particular being sort of rooted in character. It's not that I want my, all my Doctor Who stories to be like action stories. It's, it's not that at all. But it's just that like, everything is kind of languid and, and, and there's not a great sense 
of pace. And I think that's one of the things which is doing real damage at the moment to to these episodes. We we need something which is just a bit more a bit more lively. And Arachnids in the UK got really close to that as well because it it it, it felt like a, it's not a remarkable script, but it felt sort of solid and like it was building out. And I agree with you about the, like the historical references, but there was like a couple of jokes about Ed Sheeran in there that was quite funny. And and a uh, Jodie Whittaker got a bit more space to stretch out, and we learned more about the characters because they were in their home settings. And like there was like an evil moustache twirling bad guy, and that's fine. He was the villain of the piece. I like the fact that there were no aliens in it. That was quite nicely subverted. It wasn't just a it wasn't an alien invasion story or whatever. It was just you know it, it it was sort of like a contemporary historical. Other than the Doctor and the TARDIS crew, there's there's no science fiction in it at all. It's just you know it's just a story of pollution and and giant giant spiders. That's quite nice. I quite like that. But it's not. Again, that that drive isn't quite there. I'm struggling with it. Giant spiders from mutant toxic waste is very science fiction. <laughs> wow! Well, yes, of course yeah, it no, is. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not different from what you know, has been doing uh, you know, recently okay. on TV, which has been typically Precisely, alien invasion yes. stories of some sort or another. And yeah, I I think lack of incident is a great way of putting it. Uh, Chibnall has a lot less incident in the stories than Moffat and replaces the incident with uh, fleshing out like two extra characters per story, but then not fleshing out enough that you get really invested in them. So you have like a crew where like the doctor, three companions and like five guest characters all struggling for screen time and none of them feel very well developed. And so the ones that stand out, I mean, like occasionally you'll get one guest character who has, you know, something enough to stand out. I think the guy in the crane from Women Fell to Earth and uh, the male pregnant alien from this one have been recent sort of stands for me. Uh, Rosa got a very good treatment in her episode. I think that was one thing I really loved about Rosa, you know, very subjective problems with that sort of genre aside, is the idea of making historical event go on type. So it becomes like a sort of problem-solving narrative. And that was a really breath of fresh air from two channels before and two channels afterwards, because it was much more, less about a very sort of standard crisis, but a very inventive crisis of how do we make sure this event goes according to plan? And here's a robot, here's a clever solution to the robot clever solution. And that was, I think, very engaging. But with a lot of Chibnall scripts, it's been, yeah, a lot of not really engaging instant, just a very basic setup. And then a lot of character introductions and very basic A to B arcs for them and not much surprise. And I think that's really missing. I have to say one thing in sort of the defense of Rosa is that I think it's an episode which plays very, very differently in the UK as opposed to the way that it it maybe plays in America. And I think it's, I mean, certainly in the UK, it's been unbelievably well received uh, to the extent that like uh, school teachers are talking about, you know, showing it to pupils in school. And it's a way of uh, helping children become engaged with the kind of issues which are at play in the episode. And that's great. I think it's fabulous that um, that Doctor Who can sort of still have that impact and, and it's still, I mean, educational remit might be stretching it a bit, but it, it's helping to genuinely sort of bring people an awareness of, an, of a, a sort of historical period that's maybe not one that they're over familiar with. I know I'm quite old now, but I was never taught about Rosa Parks at school and I didn't know that much about it until sort of much later on in life. So if it's helping to introduce 
sort of school kids or, or people of that age, uh, you know, into this kind of awareness of, of race and how prejudice isn't just about, you know, burning crosses in people's lawns, but how it can be institutionalized and all this kind of thing. These, the, it might be something which is very pat and extremely well known in America, and that's fine. But I think in this case, it's it's definitely an episode which maybe plays slightly differently depending on, on sort of where you're uh viewing it so I, I don't think any of your sort of criticisms of it are wrong but I think it's also important to bear in mind the audience that it's intended for this time out because it's not an episode which is just like here's an episode of Doctor Who which is is up for everyone I think it's one that's being very specifically targeted here in the UK and that does make a difference in the way that it lands no I think this is as there are a lot of positive American views there I and mean, this is just a very me thing where I just don't like uh fiction based around uh, historical suffering. I think no, that's to, fair yeah, to get to like a non sort of uh, politically charged example, uh, this is my big problem with Catch 1782, <laughs> <laughs> to bring it back to Big Finish. So yeah, it's just stories of that nature are just very difficult sits for me and not, and like I always feel like I'm on your side, so what am I getting out by being lectured to sort of attitude I have towards them. But I appreciate the goodness of it. I don't want to be too down on Rosa because I appreciate it exists, even if me personally, my subjective opinion isn't high on it. But uh, yeah, to get to more general thoughts about the season, uh, the companions, I think, like you said, they're being underserved. And I think I feel a lot of guilt that Graham is my favorite so far, the white man. <laughs> but it really is because uh, Bradley Walsh has been given the most room to play. He gets uh, he had some of the most recent episode about watching Cole the midwife, so he knows about midwifing then, and that was like i think the funniest joke this season has made for me so far i burst out laughing at that and then it follows up with him saying oh i don't watch the squeamish parts that's really funny and i think maybe i because i don't have bradley walsh back he's playing better for me than people in the uk i'm curious about that but yeah i think he's great and lively because i think chibnall and blackman so far have known to sort of take just sort of take a back seat and let walsh's sort of comedic chops serve the character Whereas Toes and Cole and Gill, they don't really know how to be comfortable with those actors yet and what their strengths are. And so they've been given very more generic companion roles and little bits and pieces here shine through of fun stuff. Like uh, Ryan has like this very sort of preconception of wanting to seem cool, which I think is kind of funny. And Yaz just has a very positive demeanor, very go-to attitude, which I find endearing. But those seem very sketched in still. And I really want to see something more done with those characters. I think all of that is perfectly fair. And, you know, it's such a shame that we've got sort of three actors who are basically all fine on their own, but who seem to be struggling to kind of come up with any definition together. I, I like the fact that the uh, the episodes we've had so far are prepared to try sort of different groupings of, of companions. Mm -hmm. So we don't always have the same people reacting in the same way, but it's still... I mean, I think it was always going to be Gamble having three companions like this. And I, I I don't want to be unfair, but I also feel like at the moment we could have, like any two of the three would be fine, but having all three of the three does feel slightly overburdensome. I don't think it needs to. I just don't think the writing has yet found a way to integrate all these three characters, plus the Doctor, plus all the guest characters, and have them all sort of working as one you know, sort of well-oiled machine. And I think that's, yeah, it, it's really down to the actors or the characters. It's just that 
that, that, that hasn't all come together yet. And again, maybe once we get out of the scripts which are purely written by Chris Chibnall, maybe we'll start to get a different perspective on that. I'm certainly very much looking forward to the Demons in the Punjab next week because that's going to be something that is firstly, it's not a period and a kind of history that Doctor Who hardly ever tackles, sort of non-European sort of or American history. And, and it's not written by Chibnall. So there's a real sort of potential there to, to, to find new ways. And hopefully it means that we're going to get much more exploration of Yaz, who to me, I mean, I really love Mandip Gill in the role, but she's just, she's just, like, even in Arachnids in the UK, she just, when we got to meet her family and her mom and all the rest of it, she just still doesn't really feel like she's had that much opportunity to be fleshed out. So I'm really looking forward to having an episode which is both going to be doing something markedly different for for doctor who especially modern doctor who and also gave yaz that opportunity to to have more space to grow i think chibnall has the right inkling of the idea of how to handle three companions but then hasn't actually moved forward through it and that's the idea of sort of give each one sort of a spotlight in the episode and have them sort of take the lead and the other three sort of sit back and then that sort of gives sort of balance so you don't need to have all three act at the same time because then they will get a short shrift which is sort of the case in Sarang experiment that was more of like the doctor's episode but then Arachnid UK is theoretically the Yaz episode and Rose is theoretically the Ryan episode it's just the problem was uh I mean it sort of came through with Rosa more but Arachnid UK it was the Yaz episode we get to meet our family but then Yaz doesn't really do much unfortunately her mom gets more to do than her I think that is sort of the problem is that that's a good way her, to tackle her, it. Her mom was great, by the way. Oh, yeah. I, that, the the actor sure. that plays her mom is so for that. I know her more as a comedian than as a, a, a sort of dramatic actor, but she's so great. Sorry, kick on. No, good sidebar. Good work pointing out. But yeah, I think the idea of this is X-Men's episode and then this is a Doctor-focused episode is the best way to handle a cast this big. But we haven't seen that really happen yet. Just sort of the motions of it. But next week seems to be a very, like, sort of Yaz front and center episode, the way Rosa put Ryan's front and center, you know, because of their race. But that's, you know, that's why you want a diverse companions to sort of give you into into stories like this. And I think that's the best way to sort of tackle a TARDIS crew this big. And hopefully that becomes more du jour instead of the sort of half-hearted way that's been carried over so far. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I basically agree with all of that. I don't think I could have said it better myself. Um, Kevin, would you uh, would you like to tell people what we might be doing in the future? Sure. Uh, we're thinking of doing a retrospective on season 11 when it wraps up after the special at the end of the year. And maybe pairing that with a very light story, like Access of Insanity is sort of a light story. This time, maybe just diving into for a full episode. Uh, feedback on that would be appreciated. So let us know what you think about that. You can reach us on email at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at talkingwhotoyou. You can find me on Twitter at kevkoser, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. You can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmacquarie.scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to us. That helps other people find the podcast easier. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, Next week, we are going to leave the Fifth Doctor and we shall be moving one up. So we are going to the Sixth Doctor and we are going to be dealing with arrangements for war. So returning to Evelyn as well. What will be the fallout from Project Lazarus and Project Twilight? Well, we'll find out next week. We hope you're going to join us for that. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>